This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the Transformative Principle podcast and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. See how I added something extra in there, Fred? I like that, Jethro. Good. And I took something out, so much more balanced. (laughs) (laughs) Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York, I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, medicine today, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Hello there, Jethro. Good Thursday to you. Well, thank you for pulling us together once again for another great interview. (laughs) Um, I am very pleased to uh, have the opportunity to welcome Dr. April Joy Damien. She is an epidemiologist, a health services researcher, and a classically trained public health professional with expertise in health equity, social determinants of health, psychiatric epidemiology, and mixed methods. She currently serves as an associate director of the Weizmann Institute, a research education and policy center dedicated to quality improvement and primary care transformation with a particular focus on vulnerable populations. Dr. Damien is also the immediate past chair of the Academy Health Public Health Systems Research IG Advisory Board and concurrently holds faculty appointments at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Wesleyan University. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of California, Berkeley with a Bachelor's of Arts in Ethnic Studies, 
with highest honors. She then went on to earn a master's in medical sciences from Harvard Medical School, and then her PhD in the Department of Mental Health at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And I'm delighted to say that she is a fellow Truman Scholar, which is how we connected up. So it's always great to have another member of the group with us today. So April Joy, welcome. Great, thanks for having me, Fred and Jethro. Uh, it's a real pleasure. So we're going to have a relatively free-flowing conversation. Um, as you know, this is the Cybertraps podcast. We look at a lot of the effects of technology on society and on health and et cetera, et cetera. And so I'd love to just get a little bit more background from you about the work you've done, and then we'll dig into some questions. Yeah, no, thanks, Fred. So as you noted, I'm currently at the Weizmann Institute, and it's really embedded within a federally qualified health center. So for those of you who might, may or may not be familiar with FQHCs, it's really that safety net in primary care for the nation. Um, so we provide medical, behavioral, and in the pre-COVID um, time, dental services. And, you know, prior to um, the current COVID-19 pandemic, we provided no telehealth services. All services were provided in one of our 15 to 16 brick and mortar sites. And the, the shift in terms of remote work, safety precautions that were put into place. Right now, 90% of our clinical operations um, are via telehealth. Um, so that really shows that, you know, some practices, as you've seen a lot in like New York Times, Washington Post, numerous peer-reviewed articles have shown that not a lot of primary care practices have been able to make such a rapid pivot in terms of practice. So that actually resulted in the closure of a lot of practices, including private practices. Um, so it's just amazing how we've been able to really shift how we provide care, um, especially to the most uh, vulnerable members of our society. With telehealth, it, it seems like your work working in FQHCs, I think is what you called it, right? Um, that seems to be a, a place where you're providing a real service to people that wouldn't have access otherwise. And how has, how has telehealth helped, hindered, prevented, caused other problems you didn't foresee with, you know, especially talking about equity and people having access you know, they may not have the ability to call and, and have an appointment that way. It may have been easier to come in person. What are you seeing with that? Yeah, I do want to acknowledge, um, given that I'm a health services researcher and epidemiologist and not patient facing, that a lot of the lessons I've learned are from my clinical colleagues who actually do see patients. So just a special shout out to especially our um, leaders, doctors, Tim Kearney and Tatiana Arma. So I always want to um, give thanks to those who help my learning. Um, I, I mean, I would say some of the advantages, you know, social determinants of health have become a hotter topic in the most recent years. And you hear about, we just had a recent statewide survey about telehealth and how, you know, one of the advantages is being able to overcome transportation issues. So, you know, a lot of clinicians complain about no-show rates. And, you know, when you have families who are relying on public transportation, which may not be the most reliable, um, and they, you know, show up to an appointment late or don't show up at all because the bus passed them by or it got delayed, um, with telehealth, being able in the comfort of one's own home, being able to access medical 
especially behavioral care, um, given the current mental health crisis, which we can certainly talk about, has been one advantage of telehealth. I mean, I would say another is greater access to mental health services. So as I was saying earlier, you know, with people losing their jobs, not being sure if they can put food on the table, just the different types of financial, economic insecurity, um, food insecurity, you know, what does that mean to now be able to access mental behavioral health services and talk with a clinically trained or a licensed professional about, you know, whether it be having depressive symptoms, being anxious, suicidal ideation, all kinds of mental behavioral challenges, substance use, and to know that, you know, a provider is one click away. I think this is particularly also important. Um, Our uh, FQHC or practice in particular is one of the largest sponsors of school-based health centers. And I'm particularly interested in the younger end of the life course, you know, and what does this mean for children, who on a day-to-day, I know, you know, you're in education, Jethro, and, you know, what does this mean in terms of disruption of a child's development? You know, when they're used to seeing their friends at school, they're used to seeing other trusted adults, and then all of a sudden they have to do all their learning and all their engagement with their peers, with their teachers, counselors, uh, remotely. Like, what does that do to a child's psyche? And how can they process these issues with, again, a licensed professional? I mean, for our high school students who were supposed to transition or go to college, many of which may be the first in their family to go to college, what does this mean to spend their freshman year either remotely and not having that, you know, traditional freshman experience. I know a lot of, um, we also treat young adults. And what does this mean for those who do come out with a college degree, but then are concerned because of the high unemployment rates. So I think these are all of the things that telehealth has afforded. I'm the eternal optimist, but also a realist (laughs) and realize that (laughs) telehealth has had its disadvantages in terms of, you know, there's, we are social beings, and there is something to be said about being able to interact as social animals in person. Um, So when people are taking their visits, either by phone, one of our providers talked about sometimes they have clients who are taking their telehealth visits in the parking lot of Walmart or they have other people around them. I know both of you are very interested in issues of privacy and not really being sure, like, are there other people around? You know, I'm interested in adverse childhood experiences and how can a child talk about issues of abuse or neglect or something that's wrong if the perpetrator of that violence or abuse is present in the same room. Um, So there are certainly a lot of advantages to telehealth, but then there's also some limitations that we recognize. April Joy, I I will tell you, I I had to go from um, East Hampton yesterday to drop off a car for my stepson at JFK. And along the way, I stopped and went into a grocery store to pick up some stuff for the house. And it was the first time I had been around that many people in weeks. And it, it really did feel quite strange. And I, I completely understand what you're saying about the socialization piece. I'm, I'm a very social person myself. And so this has been pretty difficult. My two kids are out of school and, and they're in their own bubbles of one kind or another. But I have eight nieces and nephews who are still in school everywhere, basically from kindergarten up to senior year. And it has been very challenging for them. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what you're seeing from a mental health perspective 
in terms of the impact of the pandemic on kids and whether or not there's anything you could recommend to parents that would alleviate some of that? Again, that was such a great question. And definitely, I mean, I don't have kids of my own, but this is an area that I've studied to great length of, you know, when technology and the iPhone and social media, I know it was coming out in the beginning, um, at least when I was growing up and just being used to like, oh, we're just not playing outside. We could actually be in the same room and then start texting. I know it's big with millennials, but what does this mean when that's actually your only option right now, right? That's no longer fun <laughs> to be texting or being on. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, the depression that comes with it, the, the monotony of this is the only way I can engage or interact with other human beings other than those in my immediate household. I think there's anxiety, especially, I mean, CDC lays out that different age groups have different um, mental behavioral needs. You know, the uncertainty of how long will this last, right? Like, when can I actually go back to the classroom? When can I safely hug my friends? When can I not worry about hand sanitizing each time I touch something? You know, the, the curiosity, putting different things in their mouth. And then I think, you know, with the, the high school piece of, you know, will I have, you know, for those who've heard about their college experience from older siblings, or I, as I noted earlier, you know, a lot of the students or um, I should say pediatric patients we work with come from first generation families where they will be the first in their family, not only graduate from high school, but go to college and to not have that experience. So I think, you know, what does that do in terms of, you know, depressive symptoms? And I'm very careful to say depressive symptoms and not depression, since you actually need a clinical diagnosis to say how someone has depression, but just the anxiety, um, you know, in the in public health, we talk about the age that's most at worst. You see that um, peak in terms of substance use, which I think is also huge in terms of, you know, alcohol. We talked about the opioid epidemic um, was already huge before the pandemic, suicidal ideation. We talk about, you know, syndemics and these different rises in substance use as well, which I talk about as part of mental health because, there's a lot of comorbidities between depression, substance use disorders, and suicidal ideation. And, you know, with all the uncertainty, like, what does that do to a child, you know, being able to foresee the future or having something to look forward to? So I think a lot of the things that adults are experiencing, children are also experiencing as well. I'm happy to talk about adverse childhood experiences, which is more of how, you know, adverse childhood experiences could also influence mental well-being if um, that's of interest, but it's a whole different topic. I mean, a whole related topic, but it's a whole another discussion that I'm happy to expound on if of interest. Yeah. So that's something that I've done a lot um, of work on is the adverse childhood experiences and moving our schools to be trauma-informed schools. I've done that with uh, three different schools and the power that you see from addressing those issues and dealing with them uh, not just at school, but in coordination with the parents um, has been a really powerful thing. And so one of the things I want to go back to what you said that was just kind of like this, this offhanded comment about how texting kind of loses its the fun of it, you know, when you're when that's all you're doing. Another piece that I think is interesting uh, aligned with that, that I think relates to these mental health issues as well is that Texting can be a very safe way to communicate with someone in that you don't have to deal with as much rejection. It, 
you know, if you're talking to someone on the phone, you have to deal with their, the volume of their voice and the intonation and all that kind of stuff. What do you see about once we are able to go back, people avoiding interactions with people, not just because they're afraid of contracting a virus, but also because now they're, they've forgotten how to interact with others. And how do you propose we address that issue? Or is that an issue? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it's something that we've been grappling with because, you know, since the rise of social media and people being more obsessed with whether it be Snapchat or Instagram or the gram, I, I'm not as hip as millennials. So I'm not, <laughs> or Facebook, you know, how they look on, you know, their online presence as opposed to what they really look like and not the airbrushed version in person, right? Um, I think there, this is where, you know, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, they talk about building a culture of health, you know, and I, I think there's a huge responsibility in terms of the public health field in terms of like, how does public health work with education, work with the healthcare systems, work with government, and then work with the private sector. So with the YouTubes, the Facebooks, like meeting students where they're at and young people where they're at to be able to say like, can you get a celebrity, for example, like, would it make a difference if Michelle Obama made, a, you know, a public announcement on YouTube and was able to reach um, different people? You know, is it is the messaging different based on who's delivering the message? So I think it's really seeing like, what's attractive, like what gets to young people and to meet them where they're at, you know, the traditional methods of um, we actually talked about this with the CDC because they were saying, well, we posted on our website or, and I'm like, do people even go to your website or are they listening to like their family member or their friend for information? I think there's still some tried and true methods of word of mouth and just to influence like it or not of different celebrities, right? So I, I think that's part of it. And then having more of this, as I mentioned in the beginning, cross-sector collaboration so that it's not just teachers and school administrators trying to address the issue, you know, within the school space, and then politicians or public servants doing it in another space, and then healthcare, us trying to figure out when they come into the clinic, right? Like that no longer works. And that's no longer the way that the culture that we're trying to build, if we're trying to tackle this issue, what does it mean for all of us to come together? That's really fascinating. I mean, it, it I will know that things have changed once the CDC director starts doing a TikTok or something like that to really get the word out. But but this actually does relate to, I think, a, an important public health issue because as I guess it's no tremendous shock that one of the business sectors that is doing well in the pandemic is plastic surgery because people are increasingly aware of how they look on camera. It used to be really only your, you know, Matt Lowers or your Savannah Guthrie's had to worry about how they looked on camera. Now we all do to one degree or another, depending on what our work is. And so I guess because I'm very tech focused, I, I, I guess I'm curious as to whether any aspect of your work has dealt with issues of body dysmorphia uh, for kids, you know, in terms of how technology is influencing how they view themselves and how they use technology. And then maybe we segue into what role do you know schools play in all of this, but, but really start with the public health implications. Uh, what have you seen with that? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely with the literature talks about like the influence this has on um, adolescent females and their self-perception and self-esteem and confidence, you know, like, what does this mean in terms of like them being able to like go to the school cafeteria or go at, you know, being more concerned about how they look as opposed to how they're performing academically, right? Like, what does this mean in terms of the peer pressures? And then how does that then translate to or something that gets carried on into adulthood, right? So I think that's definitely a concern, or it's been a chronic concern, probably even more so now. Um, That's why, you know, we talk about the rise in suicidal ideation, because of like thinking, oh, I might not be good enough. And maybe like, I'm better off not existing, because I'm not getting the attention I want. So it's just like, what does this do in terms of not just acceptance by peers, which is, I'm sure Jethro knows this more than I do. But what does this mean for, you know, not only in terms of being able to connect socially and how much our identity, especially at that critical developmental period is tied to our social network, but in how do, you know, young people then internalize what is being said by other people, right? Like, I, I know I talk with a lot of with my peers, where like you, you reach a certain age, and then you stop caring about what people think, right? I mean, we do, we still do to a certain extent, but not so much, maybe, you know, being virtual and all this, you know, always being on zoom has made us a little more, um, self-absorbed, but I think it's even more so part of the developmental stage of adolescence. So I think it's definitely an area um, that needs more attention. I don't think we've talked about it or it's been given as much attention in recent research in terms of COVID and as well as just general media attention. Yeah. My uh, 14-year-old daughter um, is experiencing this right now. And her, she also has Down syndrome, so I need to put that little caveat in there. So it's a little bit different for her. But one of the areas where she has never been behind in her developmental level is the social aspect. I mean, she is right on pace with every developmental milestone in the social arena. And it's just amazing to watch how the difference is, is that she will articulate very clearly that she is struggling with not having friends because that is such an important thing to her and she doesn't really have a filter. So she just tells it like it is all the time. So we're seeing as she's being separated from peers that she feels like she doesn't have friends. She feels like she is alone. And even though she can connect with people behind masks, she can't sit close to them. She can't hug them, which she loves to do. And, and those are really challenging things for us to figure out as parents and I think the the question that brings to mind for me is how do you continue to make these things, these connections happen? Maybe virtually, but then knowing how important it is, how do we find ways to make those things happen? And they're just not right now. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, we, we talk about this of, you know, one of the benefits of telehealth and just getting more used to this remote or virtual world that we're living in is that, you know, just as I remember growing up in the chat rooms, like AOL chat rooms. So they're, they're having this, the equivalent of, you know, how do you have these, you know, virtual connections or virtual rooms where, you know, young people who are experiencing the same thing 
can still have that safe space, but have it online. So that's something definitely our providers when, you know, who are involved in group therapy and seeing like, how do we continue to make those connections, you know, virtual? The challenge is, um, cause I, I'm always thinking like one day we'll get past this pandemic and do we want to maintain those virtual rooms? And I think it's a combination, right? Like understanding for some people, the virtual piece is helpful, but then when you can only see the neck up, right. You don't know, like when you have a clinician who's in that room providing the group therapy, cause you also want when you're have these groups online for there to be a professional to hold the space, so to speak, but what does it mean when you can't see what's going on neck down? Fidgeting, you know, thumping their foot, crossing their legs, crossing their arms. So I think there's still something to be said of being able to continue to leverage the virtual spaces. It goes back to what I was saying earlier of meeting people where they're at. So in this case, meeting young people where they're at, but also knowing that there are limitations to what we can do in a virtual world. Yeah, I, th- I think that piece is really important, recognizing that there are limitations, but then not letting those limitations stop us from doing anything. Still trying to have some sort of virtual event if we can, or doing something that's going to be beneficial and attempting to do that, even if it's not what it looked like before. I really think those things are important. I, pr- I appreciate you pointing that out. So I think what I would do um, is to follow up on that a little bit, because at the core of the experience for kids these days, I think April Joy is their interaction with schools, right? Because that's their primary socialization slash educational environment anyway. And and schools have really been at the forefront of adapting to our pandemic world and, and bringing all of this technology into homes. And I'm, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on, on how you think schools should be addressing or at least trying to identify the potential mental health implications of this. Do they have a role or does it all fall on the parents? How do you develop a good partnership so that potential problems are being identified? Yeah, I know um, Jethro mentioned um, trauma-informed care training. So this was actually part of my dissertation when I was at Hopkins, I worked with the Baltimore City Health Department. It was in light of the Freddie Gray tragedy and the Baltimore uprising. And, you a lot know, of material to work with. <laughs> a lot of material to work with. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things. I come from a line of people in health and education, and I knew I, I, I toyed with the education. And I, I'm going somewhere with this, so just follow my personal trajectory. But education, whether it be in California, um, where I grew up in DC, where I am now, is just underfunded, right? It's just our teachers are not paid enough, public schools, you know, people having to go to charter schools. And it's just the amount of pressure there is for teachers to serve as psychologists, counselors, safety monitors, educate, like all in the same, you know, and being underfund, you know, underpaid. So I think that's a lot, it's a lot of pressure to put the onus only on teachers. I think teachers are definitely because they spend so much time with our children or with, with kids definitely play a big role. But I think with that is understanding, like, are we providing the proper infrastructure, the resources and the support to ensure their success in being able to deliver trauma-informed teaching? If they see, you know, are we showing them like what it means to, 
you know, recognize trauma and resist re-traumatizing students? Like, do we provide, is that something they have to do outside of the normal business hours, like on a weekend? Um, are there incentives for teachers to even do this training? So understanding like what is the infrastructure in place that we're having so that teachers, you know, it's not that they're saying that, oh, recognizing trauma is not important. I think, I don't know if there would be any teacher that I would encounter say, oh, trauma is not, addressing trauma and mental health is not important. Like I, I just, I think teachers know naturally that it is key that someone's mental well-being really influences the degree to which they're able to focus in the classroom and to do well. And this is not just in the US. I've worked on these issues um, in other countries and it's the same thing, like education, having that preferred infrastructure. I think also the onus shouldn't be on parents because especially with the current pandemic and I, I'm always mindful of like who are the most vulnerable members of our society and parents are you know low wage essential workers and they're the ones who are cleaning up after us who are driving the buses and then they have to come home and still have to deal with the mental be- well-being of their children in addition to their own mental well-being i think that's a lot to take in so what does it mean for healthcare system for leadership in these different spaces, you know, in government, even the private sector, um, because I know that the, the YouTubes and the Googles, this is something that they're also like teaming up with to address with different health plans to be able to address. So it's understanding like how can we pull together different resources and not just reduce it to the individual's responsibility. April, Jerry, I, I will tell you that it has long been a belief of mine that, that we do not treat mental health in this country with the appropriate seriousness that it deserves, that it is crucial, really, to our well-being as a society. And I think your point is, is well taken, that we simply have not devoted enough resources across the board to dealing with this. I will say that you know, in the work that I did in developing cyber traps for educators and then updating it, one of the themes that I, I look at uh, along the way is this concept of boundary violations in terms of inappropriate relationships and so forth. And to a large extent, those tend to occur when a teacher is taking on a role that they're not trained for. And it could be, you know, the sense of counselor or social worker or almost therapist sometimes. And it creates these situations where they're interacting with a student in a way that they're not trained to do, as you would train people or or work with people who are trained to deal with mental health issues. And, and so when I think about the resources that teachers need, that the schools need, absolutely more money for teachers. That's, that's a bottom line. But we also, I think, should be looking at ways to improve mental health services within the school environment as well as a component of public health. Yeah. And what I'd like to add there, I'm really glad you brought that up because when I do trainings with schools on trauma-informed practices, which I do, one of the first things that I tell them is that you cannot tell your teachers to be counselors in addition to being teachers. The purpose of trauma-informed training is to help them one, know how to deal with it in their own classroom, but then two, to get the kids the resources that they need rather than trying to provide them yourself as the teacher, because it's just untenable to do that. Yeah, we actually wrote, um, some of my colleagues and I, we wrote about this in a blog. I just wanted to add also the notion of 
vicarious trauma. And, you know, the, the, so for those in your audience who might be less familiar with vicarious trauma is, you know, understanding that as you're providing this care or service to people who've experienced trauma, that sometimes that trauma is also passed on to you as the clinician, or in this case, the educator. And so what does this mean to not just think of teachers as, you know, a resource or a being able to identify trauma, but are we providing mental health care to our teachers as well? I mean, there's still, at the end of the day, there's also human beings, right? And when, if you're working in a under-resourced school with a lot of young people who've experienced a lot of adverse childhood experiences, you can't help but as a fellow human being to internalize some of that. So what does it mean to like make sure that teachers themselves have access to mental health services to a trained professional to be able to process what's going on in the classroom. So I'm just wanted to add that as well that, you know, we wrote in our blog that being mindful that those who are being of service to us are also and you know, providing mental health care or access to mental health services can also have that same support for themselves. That's a really good point, April Joy. I, I, I think of that in terms of the tragic events that took place in your neck of the woods. I'm sure being in D.C. right now is a very fraught experience. So that's relevant to you personally, but it's also relevant to all of the people who make the capital work. And one of the things that's bothersome is when you look at the coverage of what's gone on, there are entire classes of people who I think do not get talked about in terms of the impact of all of this. And I, I think you, you make a very soulful point regarding teachers. I was just going to add that if, if we saw people as human beings first, before we saw what race they were, before we saw what class they were in or their profession or anything like that, I think it would make things better for a lot of people. If we could find that thing that connects us, that we're all human beings, we'd be able to overcome a lot of these things. And to the point about supporting teachers um, in their uh, struggles with vicarious trauma as well, um, that is that is a huge thing that we definitely need to pay attention to. And, you know, you and I could talk for hours about this probably, but there's so many things that we that we overlook and you have to recognize that those people need support as well. And that um, everybody who's involved in it is being affected by it in one way or another. And you've got to be aware of that. And, um, and if I can just share one story, I, as a principal, I cried one time, <laughs> that was it. And it was dealing with a parent who, who didn't have the vaccination records up to date. And so she needed the kids couldn't come to school because the vaccination wasn't up to date. And this mom just ripped into me and she had a lot of struggles in her life, a lot of trauma. And I was the recipient of all that frustration, all that pain. And I knew it. And as she was yelling at me, I knew so clearly she is just upset about everything else that's going on in her life. And she, I just happened to be the one she's taking it out on. And after she just laid into me more than I think anybody ever has as a principal, which is saying something, that's when I just felt I, I was getting that vicarious trauma, that secondary trauma. And I, 
I just started crying, went back in a windowless room behind my office and I cried myself. And usually I had a good way of dealing with that, that, but that day I just, I had to let it out. But what I'm saying is we have no idea what people are dealing with when we interact with them, especially in schools. We can try to understand, but the reality is, is that we just don't know. And so we have to recognize what that they could be experiencing something much different than us and respect where they're at and how they're dealing with that and do our best to help and support them. So April Joy, what, what kinds of issues do you anticipate working on going forward? What, what things should parents be thinking about as, as this hopefully begins to wind down? Yeah, the, so for, as a fellow Truman Scholar, <laughs> so the first thing I think about is the, the policy and advocacy piece, right? Like there's something about parents putting pressure to power for lack of a better, like, you know, not just making it seem like, oh, parent A has to deal with their issues of their child alone as this parent B. And this just like the individual having to take responsibility or just having to accept this as their fate. Like this is, this is just, I have to deal with this by myself. So, you know, really putting pressure on, you know, school districts, writing to their local government officials. So I think like, what does it mean for parents to know that there is strength in numbers and being able to organize together and realize that they can be a support for each other, but then they can also collectively add pressure to the powers that be to make these policy changes and to change more of the culture rather than leave the responsibility to the parents. I think I would add with that of teachers and parents also being able to engage with each other. Because when Jethro, when you were talking, I was thinking about, well, a lot of teachers are also parents themselves. Mm -hmm. I know my neighbor, she was an educator where her son was going to school, right? So what does it mean for parents and teachers to work more together and realize they're actually going back to your comment earlier, we, they have more, they have a lot more in common than sometimes meets the eye and realizing they're both overwhelmed, both have more on their plate than they can handle. And like, is there a way for them to combine forces and to be able to be of support to each other? You know, as someone who's in public health, I always I decided to go the public health route because it's very much of understanding not just the fish, but the water. So like understanding the system. So what does it mean for our government? I know we have a change in administration coming up in a few days. What does it mean at the federal, the state and local levels to really engage more with parents and people in the community and not, you know, I'm a researcher, but I am very mindful that I'm not just relying on what's been published, but actually talking with patients themselves, go figure. Um, so what does it mean for a government? Official- <laughs> yeah, you know, what does it mean to actually not just study or make assumptions about people, but then, you know, to actually engage people themselves, parents themselves in these policy changes, right? Like making sure their voice counts because I think, a policy created in theory or based on the latest publication and the p-value might have some merit, but, you know, in terms of applicability and relevance to parents, I think it's much different when you have parents um, having a seat at the table and being able to influence policy that has direct implications on their lives. So I think while I'm mindful about parents and you know, their responsibilities as well as teachers. I think there's also knowing that we all have a responsibility to do this. And it's not just you take care of your issues, I'll take care of mine, but like, let's work through our issues together. 
That's that's a nice way to put it, April Joy. I, obviously, the pandemic has been a tremendous human tragedy, particularly in the United States where we've done so poorly. At the same time, and without that in any way being less true, there are aspects of what has happened to us that offers some hope and some opportunity for the future. And I think one of them is specifically parent engagement with institutions that are working with their children. So for instance, I've heard from people who say that community involvement in school board meetings has gone up tremendously because school boards are meeting via Zoom. And anybody with an internet connection, which is a separate issue for us to discuss, but anyone with an internet connection can attend the meeting without having, you know, up in Vermont, we used to have very low attendance. Jethro will appreciate this. You know, you get a good foot of snow and all of a sudden there's like two people at the school board meeting, you know, because it's actually kind of a lousy thing to drive around Vermont in the snow. So in any case, I would think that, and, and school boards, you know, we'll see this as a mixed blessing, but parents have so many more tools now to reach out to the powers that be, to to speak their truth to that power. And I really hope that continues going forward because as we have seen in this past election, engagement is critical to the functioning of the society. And, you know, <laughs> believe me, well, I don't, no need to get overly commentary about it, but there are mental health implications all the way around. And I think if you're engaged, it is actually beneficial to your mental health. Yeah, I would, I would second that completely. And that's what I appreciate about what you said is that there are positive things that have happened because of the pandemic and we should grasp and hold on to those positive things in a place like Alaska, where I was principal, where uh, things are so far apart. We've been doing a lot of these things like broadcasting board meetings on the web so people can watch them on the radio and all that kind of stuff. Those things have been in place in in rural areas, because that's kind of how you have to make things work. Um, and so it's, it's good that some of those things are coming and hopefully school boards will continue to broadcast online so that people can participate and join in. And I want to take every good thing that we can find from the pandemic and continue doing it. And I want to take every bad thing that we were doing before the pandemic and try to get rid of it. Any comments on, on those kinds of changes, April, Joy? Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely, so the 2020 and all its glory, it will not, will definitely go down in history, but I don't think it, the events that unfolded in 2020 from, you know, the California wildfires to the, the pandemic and then systemic racism, you know, like a reckoning with moral reckoning with our nation's soul, right? Like, so these different, and then even what happened um, at the Capitol last week, right down the street from me, like, I think. We, there's different ways, there's a, in my yoga practice, so I'm, I'm trained to teach yoga. So we talk about reacting versus responding. You know, you can react and say, oh, this is terrible um, and just be paralyzed by all the negativity, but also realize like so much of what happened also allowed people to come together and realize that, oh, I'm not the only one who's frustrated about this. I'm going to make phone calls to people in Georgia, right? Even if I'm in Connecticut, I, you know, I'm going to reach out to seniors. I know this is happening in DC because they're experiencing social isolation. So I think there's, you know, you realize what you don't have 
when it's gone or it's when taken from you. So I think there's this yearning for us to be connected and to see how can I help. And there's been, as Fred, you were saying, more platforms available for people to actually act on that. So it's not just, I'm stuck in six feet of snow. I used to live in Boston. So I understand the being stuck in snow. I can't do anything, but knowing that, you know, like different or, you know, advocacy organizations are texting, like they send out, you know, automated messages, they're making phone calls, they're sending emails, they're having, ad, you know, ads on streaming devices, like I see them on Hulu, right? Like it's no longer social media, you know, can be used. And I know you've addressed this on the podcast, you know, cyberbullying, but it's also a platform for organizing and for being able to connect with human beings who you might not, you know, have been able to connect to if, technology weren't as easily available. Like I know people who might not been able to go down to Georgia, but because, you know, we've received emails and said, please call up residents in Georgia, then it doesn't matter where you are in the country, you can actually, you know, be engaged in that kind of um, outreach. So I think those are some things of, and I want to be mindful, this is something we talk about at telehealth. And we know that telehealth is here to stay, right? Like the cat's out of the bag, it's not going anywhere. But something we talk about in our social justice spaces, it's not either or, but yes, and. So yes, there were some things pre-pandemic, pre the, you know, over dependence on technology that were great, but there are some great things that came out of technology. So how do we take lessons learned from the pandemic? You know, some technology also brings attention to social injustices that we might not have been aware of because no one filmed it. So I think there's so many lessons about the role and the potential of technology that were actualized in 2020 that we want to continue, but also know that there were, you know, great things pre-pandemic that we want to maintain. So I think it's being able to merge the two as we're going into or already in this new year. Well, April Joy, that is such a terrific note <laughs> on which to end this podcast. And I would really like to thank you for joining us in the 13th month of 2020 to be on the podcast and to talk over some of these mental health issues. Um, not surprisingly, uh, Jethro and I have been discussing doom scrolling as part of uh, you know what we're coping with with all of this. So, Jethro, anything you want to close out with? No, that was that was a great final thought, April Joy. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, April Joy. I'm sure we'll invite you back again sometime. So that wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, now we'll add in mental health and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. We want to thank Dr. April Joy Damien for being part of the show today. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you've probably enjoyed what you've heard. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast player of choice. And please share it with your friends. We appreciate having you listen to the podcast and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do 
all of those things. You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.